0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: For 18 years, I've truly been blessed to be a pacer and a Hoosier.
2: listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast, with Alex Golden and Michael Facci, Karis LeVert, people don't realize how good he really is.
0: LeVert, oh, skies high for the champ. McConnell pushing again, gets underneath, finds Sabonis for the dunk and the go, ball. We go Brogdon for three. Boom,
1: baby! <laughs>
0: Duarte for three.
3: Time shot. Warren lets it fly. Yes, TJ
1: Warren
2: is not human.
3: All right, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, of staying the pace, we are back. I am joined today by a recently single out of a relationship with Moses Moody, Alex Golden. <laughs> Alex, how are you doing today?
1: Man, I, I hate to say it, but I moved on quick. It was more of a, a fling thing there with Moses Moody, but I've moved on. He's in California. I'm in Indiana. Can't can't think the long-distance relationship up anymore. So I'm uh, I'm full-fledged in on Chris Duarte. Uh, he is a guy that I just can't imagine my life without fudge. <laughs> hey,
3: I don't blame you there. Chris Duarte looked real good in game one. I know it was, yeah, he didn't drop 20 to 30 points, but he looked efficient, looked confident. This is a guy who I feel like can create his own shot and is not afraid to take the big
1: shot. No, I mean, we saw a couple different things from him in that first game of Summer League, and I know that the Game 2 is going on right now as we're talking, but that first game, man, he had a nice steal. He had a nice, nice pull-up three, a little step back. I mean, this guy is showing us some things, and I get that at Summer League. I'm not overreacting. I just think, can this guy play basketball? I, we, we see highlights. We see games and footage from Oregon and how he played there, and he looked really good. The Pacers were really high on him for a reason. I think that he's going to be a part of this rotation going forward. I am really enamored by his game, Flatch.
3: I really am, and you can't sleep on that two-handed block that he had. Oh, I mean, yeah. Just really flashing on both sides of the ball. I mean, just really uh, – it was very encouraging. Isaiah Jackson, limited minutes, still had two blocks. So, And that was also barely having any practice time at all. So I feel like I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that – his minutes will
1: continue to grow during summer league, and I think we'll cons- we'll see more and more production out of Isaiah. Oh yeah, there was already an alley oop pass from Duarte to Isaiah Jackson in the first quarter, I believe, of this summer league game. So pretty pretty cool to see that. I mean, Isaiah Jackson can—he's a pogo stick man. He can jump out of the gym, and uh, you know, I was—I'm uh, just a big fan of him. I'm glad that we got him, and we'll see what he does. I'm, I'm assuming he's going to play most of his time in the G League, but that's neither here or there I'm excited to see him grow as a prospect but Faji today on our podcast we had a lengthy conversation with indie star beat writer Jay Michael discussing everything that's happened pretty much going back a little bit to last season but but mostly since the off season started we pretty much hit on everything besides you know the Carlisle hire which I think we've talked about that enough but talked about his assistants talked about all the rumors that have been going around I thought this was a really great conversation.
3: A lot of great stuff. Hadn't spoke with Jay in a while, so we had to cover, you know, all the off season activities and just uh, little bits and pieces of what he's been hearing lately of what the team might do. Still, a lot of unanswered questions, but you could tell the Pacers might
1: be up to something with a few of the moves that they've made. That uh, Jay discusses with us. Yeah, he he drops some really interesting nuggets in this one, like he always does. So I hope you guys, you know, stay tuned for that. But whether you like him or not. Everything that he's been reporting, I'm I'm not just saying this to kiss his butt. I really believe it. I mean, he has absolutely been killing it with his coverage of this team. I mean, everything that he's reporting has come to to light. And I, 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 you know, when a guy is consistently doing it and is accurate, you got to give credit where credit's due.
3: Absolutely. I had to tip my hat on a few of uh, the calls that he made weeks in advance of the draft or free
1: agency because they were accurate. Yeah, absolutely. So, Let's take a quick break. And after this break, we're going to bring on the one and only Jay Michael to talk all things Pacers
0: offseason. We'll be right back after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: What's going on, everybody? We are joined right now by Star beat writer for the Indiana Pacers, J. Michael J. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Good, man. Long time, no talk. Uh, Guess some things have changed, so uh, there's some stuff <laughs> to talk about, right?
1: absolutely <laughs> if I should go ahead with the first question oh, that we do I
3: mean Jay free agency I don't want to say it wrapped up for the Pacers but it got off to a quick start that then kind of you know tailored off haven't seen much movement but the first move the Pacers made immediately re-signing TJ McConnell I mean did you think was there any ever any real doubt that McConnell was going to come back to the Pacers
2: no nah, there, was, there was no doubt since February I mean every piece of reporting that I'd done leading up to that moment was, you know, McConnell's coming back, McConnell's prioritize over McDermott. And that was clear. I, I I knew that, like I said, even way before all-star break um, uh, just because of conversations I've had with people um, leading up and, and they knew they couldn't keep Doug. They knew they wouldn't be able to afford him. Obviously they did a sign and trade obviously to get him to where he wanted to go. And, keep his uh, bird rights intact, uh, I guess. And, um, you know, and, and that was the plan all along. It was just a question of where McDermott was going to end up. But uh, McConnell was McConnell was a lock because he's Indiana in terms of the kind of style and the kind of hustle they want to see with their guys in the second unit. And his contract, you know, it's a career – high. you know, it's, it's the biggest contract of his career, but it's also a kind of contract that based on the cap number – that the Pacers were dealing with it was the kind of contract that they also could could come to terms with him on pretty quickly. So this was not a bunch of hand wringing and what should we do, what shouldn't we do? This was this was set in stone uh for months. And I think you saw that with the way it went down in free agency.
1: Yeah, I think we all kind of uh accepted that early in free agency, just kind of, or I guess the off season thinking that McDermott would be the one to leave because look, 14 and a half million per year is a lot of money for Doug McDermott. So let me ask you this with them doing the sign and trade that was official, I believe Sunday. Can you kind of walk us through why, you know, the Spurs would agree to a sign and trade with the Pacers for Doug McDermott and what kind of trade exception that creates for the Pacers to use for the next, you know, I think it's less than an actual year, but close to a year now.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, the sign-and-trade thing, you know, you see the sign-and-trades, a lot of them expire. Excuse me, not the sign-and-trades, but the trade exceptions. Mm -hmm. A lot of teams, they have them that expire, that they never use them. So you have a a small window in which to use it. Uh, But uh, it basically allows you to acquire a player without having to give up anything. Um, That's kind of the the, the quick and easy way to explain the the trade exception. Uh, But, yeah, it kind of comes down to if you have a good relationship with a player and – uh, you know, you're on good terms. You say, you know, hey, look, he's going to leave. We can't pay him. Uh, and you tell his agent uh, to find the trade part. It's, you know, if they want to do a sign and trade, uh, you'll do it. Because that way, it, it serves both sides, right? McDermott can kind of pick the team he wants to go to, which is San Antonio. Um, San Antonio you know, is going to pay him this number. You orchestrate a sign and trade so that when he gets sent to San Antonio – he doesn't start over at zero when it comes to his years of service in terms of his bird rights. So that allows him to be able to get bigger raises, and, and that's a big thing to guys like that. That's why you do it as a sign-and-trade. The flip side on how it benefits a team like the Pacers is as we just talked about, the trade exception. You're able to orchestrate that. I mean, technically, when LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami, it was a sign-and-trade, though really it's a in the same thing here, but it's really a free agent move, but you set it up as a sign-and-trade so the team that's losing the player has something that maybe it can show for it and you, an asset that it can use in the future that might allow it to, uh, to, to benefit as well. So it really serves both sides. It's when both sides are – and look, when LeBron did it, it wasn't an amicable thing, but it makes sense as the team that was the rights holder of McDermott, in this case the Pacers, to do that so they can have that trade exception and gives them some options going forward into the season.
3: You know, when you talk about those options, I've heard various reports, whether it's a $7.3 million trade exception or 7.4, either way, you know, it's right in that range. We also saw the Pacers move back Keelan Martin's guarantee date um, to, I believe it's now August 31st on his contract for the 1.7 million. The Pacers, now that they have this trade exception, Jay, how do you think they're going to use it?
2: I mean, the, 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 the Keelan Martin thing is kind of curious. I've seen – teams move back the guarantee date. What they normally do when they move back the guarantee date is they give the guy, um, you know, $50,000 to agree to move back the guarantee date. Um, I saw this happen when I was in Washington with Jarrell Eddie, when he was with the Wizards. And they pushed his guarantee date uh, because they weren't sure what they were going to do. They gave him some, you know, I think they may have even given him a hundred thousand at the time to push it. Uh, And they ended up not guaranteeing his contract. (laughs) It's kind of hard to say what's going to happen as a result of that when they push it, Um, and um, but yeah, I mean it it gives the Pacers like they have what three guys if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. On um, two ways, right? Um,
3: Right now, currently, yeah. At
2: this this moment, you know, you can only have two. Mm -hmm. I think, and they're still trying to. I think they're still trying to figure out what kind of moves they're going to make. I wouldn't be surprised if something happened. uh, uh, before the season that that trade exception by the way like I have I haven't looked at the latest the adjusted CBA rules but um in terms of using that in a trade itself I can't recall I know you can break it up right no, yep wait can you can you not break it up? I'm confused I, yeah you know. I, th-
1: I think as long as it's under the seven million I don't know if you can break it up but you can acquire somebody that doesn't make the full. I think it's exactly. supposed to be like 7.3 right. million mm-hmm.
2: right you don't have to use the whole thing Right, but you so, can't
1: combine it with like a Jeremy yeah, Lamb plus exactly, exactly.
2: Correct. correct, So it gives them a lot of options. I don't know what they're going to end up doing with it, if anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it gives them I, that. That tells me that plus pushing Keelan's guarantee date um, that they're still trying to figure out some things. And th- does that mean Keelan's going to definitely not going to come back as a result of the tale I told you about J- Jarrell Eddie? No, but it buys them time because they haven't quite settled on what they're going to do yet. I I don't know what they're going to do with
1: it. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what they do with those two-way contracts. I would assume Amita Brahma is not retained just because they drafted Isaiah Jackson, probably give Cassius Stanley that second two-way contract to go with Dwayne Washington, who just had a fantastic Monday game. I don't think you missed, but like one shot the entire game. So I think that Stanley and Washington are the most likely to be on there, but we'll see what happens. I know that the biggest thing Pacer fans keep asking is what are they going to do with Jeremy Lamb and his expiring $10.5 million contract? There's been rumblings that they've tried to trade him, but it's just, I I don't really know what's really out there for him, what his value is. So have you heard anything on that front?
2: I haven't heard anything on that front. That's been kind of a a not so big secret for, for months now that they've been kind of, you know, they've been looking at ways to part with him because even if, you know, A, you got the health issues, um, that he came off of, with that, that broken leg, and you saw them him having issues last season as well. Uh, and then B, even if he's healthy, where does he fit? Uh, especially when you have a guy like Duarte, who I think you really want to give more time to than really relying on Jeremy Lamb, who's expiring, who's not going to be around for the long haul. Um, and so, yeah, uh, look, his contract isn't a bad contract. It's only $10.5 million. So um, I-, I expect maybe once the season starts, uh, there's going to probably be a team. And this is provided Jeremy Lamb himself is healthy. Um, if he's healthy, I think they'd like to get Jeremy Lamb out on the floor the way they did Victor Oladipo before they traded him so everybody can see, see, he's okay. He can play. He's fine. Uh, and when teams see that, then they're more likely to make a deal, especially once the season starts. Somebody's going to lose a guard. Somebody's going to lose a, a score to some sort of injury whether, you know, long-term or for the season. And they're going to need a guy like a Jeremy Lamb you can bring off the bench. And then the interest, I think, in him grows. But I don't think the Pacers, you know, I I don't think there's a clamoring like, hey, we want Jeremy Lamb from 29 other teams in the league. And I don't think that right now the Pacers, for instance, would want to, say, buy him out just to make him go away and clear a roster spot. I don't think his, his contract is... It's not that it's not that kind of burdensome, but yeah, I, I just don't sense right now that there's a whole lot of activity for Lamb. But I think they're hoping at some point soon, obviously before the trade deadline, either they can deal him or put him in some sort of package as a throw-in um, uh, to be able to clear an extra roster spot. Uh, uh, because you know, and, and let's face it, who knows? Maybe Dwayne, uh, the kid. Who we just said Dwayne Washington. Washington maybe a guy like washington or somebody turns out to blow them away and is like hey we got to get we got to get a roster spot for this guy. And okay, maybe that changes and you make a more aggressive move just to try to give Lamb away just to to clear a, a, not just a two-way spot but a spot for somebody that maybe they see something not only with these free agents that they have but you got you can't forget these other teams in Summer League, they have good free agents too who are on their teams that aren't locked into those teams. You might want to pull somebody from another team that you've seen in Summer League that's impressive who who, who isn't on a guaranteed deal with someone. So there's always a possibility that you can make a more aggressive move uh, to that end too. So that's why I said they're keeping their options kind of open, and I think Lamb Lamb's going to be gone. It's just a question of how quick it's going to happen and the method in which it's going to happen. I, I just can't see – him ending the season still on a roster with the Pacers. I can't see that.
3: Now, the, the Lamb trade market does seem rather dry at this moment, but uh, you know, just like you mentioned, I can't see him finishing the season, but similar to the point you made on Oladipo, at least starting last year with the Pacers, being healthy, I think it really did help his trade value. But one free agent signing that kind of came a little bit of a surprise, we did a live reaction here when free agency just started. When Tory Craig got signed maybe 15 minutes into free agency, Jay, had you heard any rumblings about Torrey Craig and the Pacers? And what do you think his role will be with this team this season?
2: No, I I actually didn't hear a lot of rumbling about that. Uh, But it was clear, you know, obviously the only other kind of move they could have made is is, uh, something with someone like a Torrey Craig, given the salary cap constraints and kind of what their their need was. You know, um, so much talk, you know, last year, and I I reported uh, a lot about this, about they felt like they – didn't have the locker room culture, the toughness, the, um, that kind of uh, defensive guy that they can rely on. And, you know, Craig has kind of shown some ability to do some of that um, uh, last, you know, last few seasons, actually. So, no, he came out of left field. That, that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm sure they already had their hooks into him early but in the process. I I doubt, I doubt if anybody came to terms within 15 minutes of free agency opening, that tells you that they already had something lined up. <laughs> because of course, the, yeah. Pacers, the Pacers had to lock in their biggest contract in free agency, which most teams do. That's the first signing. But then that was McConnell. And then you slot in uh, Tory Craig. So it, it makes sense um, of why they would sign him. Uh, there's a – you know, you can kind of wonder, like, how did they – what lineups are you going to use? How does this fit? Uh, if you take Rick Carlisle at his word that, you know, he's going to use – you, know, you hear coaches promise to use all everybody we have, and then when the season comes, they basically do the opposite. Uh, Carlisle uh, seems to insist that he's really thinking about the long-term, going into the postseason, and saving guys on their minutes. Uh, so you have to figure a guy like Craig uh, factors in at some point exactly how they use him. I, I mean, I got to see them play a few games together first. I, I just don't have a clue on how all the pieces fit, or if getting Tory Craig is kind of a move that's going to ultimately produce another move, as I said, before we get into the regular season. I just feel like, and I've been kind of told, don't rule out another move happening before the regular season starts. It's just not clear to me, is that just a minor move or is that a big move? And so I think that's going to determine how a guy like Tory Craig fits in. How does a guy like, Cassius Stanley fits in, if he's going to get any playing time as a two-way player. How does Keelan Martin fit in? Is he going to stick around after his guarantee date? Because you just don't know.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things here with this Pacers roster. And I know you've kind of addressed some of it. You said don't expect Turner or Brogdon to be traded, but it still could happen. Brogdon the more likely of the two to be traded. Uh, I want to circle back to that a little bit. But first, I am kind of wondering if you have any updates on Gogo Batadze and maybe why he's not with the team other than what they've reported as personal reasons.
2: Yeah, I, I don't – you know, I haven't been around the team for the last – you know, I, I I begged out of going to Vegas after the Delta variant uh, kind mm-hmm. of stuff happening, and I see all this craziness taking place on planes and people trying to open doors. So I didn't feel real comfortable about, grief. about traveling uh, because you guys might see me in the news for beating someone to death on a plane if that happens.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, no, actually, I haven't heard any anything, any details beyond, um, you know, at first, remember, I think they said it was his back.
1: Right. Uh, yep. mm-hmm.
2: And it's uh, it's always something, you know, the funny thing, i tell you what I do know about Gogo. Like, his first year was a, a complete waste of a year. Um, you know, he wasn't in shape. He didn't know, he. I was told, he didn't realize what it took to be an NBA player and his conditioning just wasn't up to par. And he underestimated weight training, and he really got in the gym. He got physically stronger. Last season, you saw he was in better shape. He showed flashes of being a little bit closer to what you needed him to be, but he still has a ways to go. Um, but it always seems like it's something. If it's not that first year where he, you know, I guess he was 19 years old, so you figure a guy 19 may not know what it takes to play in the NBA. And he even had to learn that the hard way. Um, The second thing is last year, you know, every time it seemed like, or even going into the bubble that first season, he always had a leg injury. He kept missing and there was just no continuity with him. And then you saw things like that happen last year too, but he was a little bit better uh, and more consistent last year. So whatever the case with him going into year three, I would love to see him just to be able to have a normal, complete season with no interruptions. So you can finally get a, get a, figure out exactly who he is and what he's going to be because even if you wanted to say put him in a deal and rework the roster exactly what are you going to get from from him at this point and I don't think you're going get to get a lot because nobody exactly knows so uh, I, I expect him I, I don't know beyond what most of us already know uh, in terms of what's going on with him um, but um, you know they, they need him to get they need him to get a, a complete season and to be to be in shape and be healthy. And, you know, obviously it's kind of disappointing that he's not in this summer league because I thought I was looking forward to seeing him because he's a guy that that really needs that work.
3: I think that Goga above every other player would have benefited the most from being in the summer league after not being able to participate the last two years. So that w- that was a shame. Obviously, we hope everything goes well with his family. Our condolences to his family. But while, while we're sticking on summer league for now, Cassius Stanley, should he be feeling a little bit of pressure that his two-way spot might not be a for sure guaranteed? Because I know it's just one game, it's early, failed to really make an impact against the Knicks. Should Stanley be feeling the pressure at
2: all? I don't think he feels pressure right now. Um, Look, here's what I do know about him. He didn't have a G League last year, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't have a Summer League last year. And, you know, and then he played on a team that was four games under 500 and barely got on the court because Nate Bjorkren pretty much forgot about him. Um, and I feel like this is really his first season because um, the, 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 his, his actual first season in the league, to me, was a waste. Uh, it was a throwaway. So I don't think he feels pressure. You know, they gave him a qualifying offer. Um, I, I expect him to accept it based on what I've been told, unless the Pacers change their mind and pull it at the last minute, Uh, I think when you're drafted, if he he were a free agent pickup on a two-way deal, I would be worried if I were him. But the fact that the Pacers invested a pick in him, even though that pick came in the 50s, uh, that gives him a little bit more security because teams want to give guys like that uh, a chance to succeed more because you are our pick. We're selected. They want to be able to say – we found this guy. This is our guy we developed. So he's going to get a little, he's going to get more rope than a guy who, um, you know, who's just a free agent pickup, who they don't really have any resources invested in yet. Um, and I think, like I said about last year the Bjorkren, you know, he was, Stanley was supposed to play late in the season. Um, I was told the front office had talked to Bjorkren about that, about, hey, you got Cassius Stanley there, you know, all those injuries. And here they are getting blown out by 40 points in the game and you'll see his stat line. And he played two minutes. It's like, what are you doing? And <laughs> so I think that was a source of huge frustration for him because Bjork told him that he was going to use him in certain games and Hey, get ready. And then the guy wouldn't break a sweat and wouldn't put him in the game. So I think they understand what he went through in his first year as well. Then that was kind of unfair to him. And he he, he suffered because of that. Plus, like I said, they invested a draft pick in him. So I wouldn't think that he should sweat at this point uh, with the qualifying offer already put out there for him. I think he's going to be okay, at least in the short term. And we're still having this conversation, you know, at this point next year or, you know, maybe in the middle of the season, he gets some time to play and he doesn't look good. would be okay. Maybe it's a different conversation then. But um, I-, I think he's okay for right now.
1: Yeah, because I want to say, I believe it was early in the season last year against Phoenix, there was like a four-minute stretch there where he played really well. And I thought, okay, I mean, this guy's athletic. He's a second-round pick. You don't usually see second-round picks get much playing time, especially their first year in the NBA. But, you know, with all the injuries, like you said, I, I was a little bit surprised. And the Bjorken era, obviously, was one that all of Pacer Nation is quickly trying to forget and move on from. We are excited about Rick Carlisle and what he brings to the table. But – I do kind of want to circle back now to the draft night where the Pacers selected Chris Duarte with the 13th overall pick. You had been on this reporting-wise for months talking about this is kind of the guy, this is the guy they want to go after. All the Pacers Nation was really glued to Moses Moody. I feel like it was almost a unified group that wanted Moses. But Chris Duarte is the guy, and he looked pretty good in his first game for summer league. Just very mature for, uh, you know, for a rookie, but he is 24 years old. My biggest question, though, about Duarte is, do you anticipate him cracking that 10-man rotation right away?
2: I do. Because uh, I, I know they view, they view him that highly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, Duarte is like, you know, if Duarte wasn't 24, if he were like 22 instead, would the backlash have been as great? I don't think so. Um, but I think if you just look at the skill, Um, There are countless people who I talk to at Oregon, um, scouts who from other teams. You know, people think when I talk about what's going on, I I only know people who know about the Pacers. You know, I've covered most teams in this league at some point. I know people on staffs around the league. You know, people who are on staffs that you currently cover, they'll end up on other staffs around the league on other teams. So, you know, I know people from staffs all over and what they thought about Duarte. And their view was starkly different than the Moses Moody crowd. (laughs) And, and, you know, who knows? Maybe they end up being right. Maybe they end up being wrong. I mean, draft picks is, you know, it's hard to gauge uh, about who's going to succeed and who's not. There's no, there's a formula to get it right every time you get it right every time. And here you are with teams. They have more information. They know more about these guys that people on the outside looking in will never know, good and bad. And they've seen things that you'll never see. They've seen medicals that you'll never see. And all of that kind of factors into how they come at the conclusions they do. And and even despite that, that's no guarantee they're going to get it right still. <laughs> that's how hard it is to gauge these guys. So Duarte, I expect him to crack the rotation. I think Carlisle, Rick Carlisle's influence and his impact in terms of what he wants on that team. He wants a guy with they got at that pick who could play. Uh, and, you know, I've never been one to get too jacked up about Summer League. The only thing Summer League tells me is that you have a chance to play and be good. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be great or anything. Uh, But if you look really bad in Summer League, like TJ Leaf, it tells you you probably are going to have trouble playing in the big show. (laughs) To me, that's like almost like like a line of demarcation. If you can't show that you could play in Summer League, I have some real concerns about you. But if you show that you can, it means there's some, some hope. So, but yeah, I expect Duarte to contribute. I expect him to play. Um, and I expect him to, you know, it's not that I think he's going to get 20 minutes a game right off the bat. But I think at some point, by the time we get deep into the season, I think he, he could be at that level in the rotation that he's not just an afterthought that you throw in, you know, when you're down 20 or up 20 with two minutes left in the game. I think he's going to play some meaningful minutes.
3: And that's definitely what we're looking for. And, Jay, I definitely want to tip my hat to you because, you know, you were on that Chris Duarte to Indiana train for at least it felt like a week or two in advance of the draft. Um, But you also had an interesting report that I'd love to hear you elaborate on a bit. You mentioned that even after the draft, Golden State was still pursuing trades for Chris Duarte. Yes. Was there anything that you could expand upon in terms of that report?
2: Well, I know I had multiple people tell me that – uh, Duarte was told on the bus to, to, to the draft. Uh, he was told by a Golden State official that he would be their pick at 14. Okay. Um, and when I say multiple people, I'm not talking about when I say sources, I don't know who some people use as sources that turn out to be wrong. I'm not talking about the janitor or somebody who's driving the bus. So, um, So now when I first reported that, uh, someone from Golden State, and I, I, I know their front office pretty well. Someone from Golden State called me or texted me that night, told me my information was wrong. And I said, yep. I said, uh, uh, well, it's like I was in there and I'm telling you that that's not what happened. I was like, well, I do know that owner Joe Lacop, when that pick happened, slammed his when, the, when I say the pick happened, when the Pacers took Duarte, uh, Joe Lakeup slammed his fist on the table when he was taken. Um, So I don't know what you saw that told you that you guys, that that wasn't your pick. Um, But then you saw a guy, Monty Poole from the Bay Area um, who covers Golden State for NBC Bay Area. He's been covering Golden State for like the better part of two decades. Then came out and confirmed my report was accurate. So, uh, uh, and so he knew as well that what I had was spot on. There were calls being made. Golden State did want to try to get Chris Duarte because they viewed him. This is the funny thing. If you listen to the broadcast that night, I think it was, I think it was ESPN broadcast. Mm-hmm. Somebody on there made the reference to him being Clay Thompson light or something like Clay
1: yeah, Thompson. Yeah, Jay broadcast. Billis. Jay Billis okay. called him a poor man's Clay Thompson.
2: You know who you know who said that he was a Clay Thompson clone? The Golden State Warriors Front Office. Ooh, I love it. That's how I, so when he said that, I know who his source of that information is. Mm -hmm. So I know what I'm talking about on that. And why would you, by the way, as a team, if you ended up picking Joe Blow as your first round pick, would you admit that, hey, we didn't really didn't want him. We wanted a guy that went before him. Nobody's going to admit that. No team is ever going to admit that, ever. Mm -hmm. So just because, so I mentioned like, hey, a Golden State official denied the report because that's. Their position they wanted to get out, the fairness in me and me doing my job, they denied it. But I have from a couple people, multiple people, and I don't mean Pacers people per se, uh, who told me about what was said on the bus to Chris Duarte, Um, and he totally expected – that that Golden State expected him to fall. Now, why didn't Golden State trade up to get ahead of the Pacers, to be able to get him? I'm not sure if they tried – or if they just thought that he was going to drop to them and that the Pacers are going to take someone else. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 stand on that hundred percent. And like I said, the golden state guy who's been covering that team for the better part of 20 years uh, who was there on draft night uh, said what I, what I reported was true. So um, even if he didn't do that, what I reported was true, but I mean, you know, I guess you could draw your own conclusion. If you don't want to believe it. I don't know. Some people say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. but well, I don't believe it. I don't care. I know it's accurate. And the funny thing is they know it's accurate and that's all that really matters.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's funny because people choose to believe what they want to believe. But at the end of the day, you know, you've been backing up everything you've been reporting with the TG McConnell stuff with the Duarte stuff. So, I mean, I, I don't see why people wouldn't believe what you're saying is true because it very much seems like you are in the know and you've backed it up several times. And it even goes back to, you know, last the couple of seasons before that when McMillan got fired and all that stuff. So, Uh, you know, we we definitely respect your opinion. That's why we have you on here all the time because we know we're getting the truth. And another thing that you brought up in an article after the two signings were made uh, official with with Torrey Craig and T.J. McConnell, or they were reported, I should say, you did bring up the fact that uh, Miles Turner might come off the bench. It's something that's being talked about, I guess. I'm not sure. You said a leak source told you that. Yes. Um would you anticipate Miles coming off the bench? Number one, and how do you think he would go about accepting it? And how do the Pacers look with that starting five if he's not in the starting five?
2: Well, number one, I'll start with the easy one first. Would he be okay with it? Absolutely not. <laughs> 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 I don't anticipate that at all. Like he, right. that, that would take a whole lot of talking to in order to make <laughs> that. Like I just don't um exactly and, and what would the lineup look like if you didn't do that? I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, does that mean they're going to make a move before the season starts, which is going to make it a non-issue, possibly? Um, and that's why I, I think that option's on the table. Could it be a, a permanent not-start-Miles-Turner, or could it be a case where, you know, there's going to be some times when Carlisle starts him and other times that he doesn't? That, 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 I think a lot of stuff is on the table. Just like, you know, I think just about every player, every significant player on that team, has been discussed in some sort of deal mm. leading up to free agency. Not meaning the Pacers are trying to push them out the door, but that they were willing to listen and talk about, you know, these are the possibilities or, you know, you know, what could you get for this or that? I mean, because they were that open I think to reshaping how the team was going to look. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of possibilities out there. Um, like, I, I mean, I had not I never talked about some of the, some of them were just kind of far-fetched and far off and there was no way it was going to happen. But, yeah, I, I expect i expect it's possible that Turner comes off the bench. Maybe he doesn't st- – if he's still with the team, maybe they don't start the season that way. But I think, you know, I think the difference between Carlisle and Bjorkin, I think every time I say Nate Bjorkren's name, like Pacers, people go, who? Because that's what they want to forget him. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but I think one of the biggest differences is that – Bjorkman said last year to me and I asked him about it that he was open to splitting the bigs and this was early in the process like in the in the training camp and then I asked Miles Turner about what would he think if he was the odd man out if that happened and then he says he was really peeved about it and he's like he's never talked to me about that where do you get that from I was like I, t- I asked Nate Bjorkman about this a couple of days ago and he said Da-da-da-da-da. and Miles found it is like this is news to me I don't know I don't know what the answer to that that's how I know he wouldn't take it kindly because he he was almost angry at the question that I asked him about coming off the bench. Um, I think the difference is if Carlisle was open to doing that, he would have had that conversation with his players already, whereas I don't think Bjorkman had the confidence or the authority to feel like he could do that. Um, so, no, I don't think Miles would be crazy about it. I, I think he might say, why don't you just trade me then if that happened? I think that's possible. Um, but I think the Pacers are open – to making sorts of adjustments, uh, they've done a lot of talk about adjusting and changing. But when they got Bjorken in last year, we expected all this adjusting and changing about how you do things. And he adjusted and changed and changed in ways that mostly weren't good. <laughs> so I think they gotta now they preached it a lot, and, and this year they're gonna have to practice some of that stuff they said because for the last season half two seasons they've come up short in terms of their promise in doing so
3: you know miles has put up with
2: quite
3: a lot and one of the things that you're going to add to the list is the pacers ended up packaging aaron holiday and four second round picks to move up to 22 and snag yet another center in isaiah jackson who mind you is a very good shot blocker do you envision any role at all for isaiah this year with the pacers
2: not if miles turner stays i agree Uh, yeah if not if turner stays um Mm -hmm. Uh, if, if now obviously if something happens in terms of that, that turner front then obviously you know if, you know this should be a role for him because you know you need a shot blocker in there. Um, and you know and I don't know if you can trust, can trust you can't really trust Goga in that role at least not now. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, it's, it, that was a, that was a, and, and that's why when I say looking into the start of the season, there just seems to be a couple of variables in play, and I'm not sure which one is real and which one isn't. Is Turner being moved real, which then makes Isaiah Jackson more of a real option? Is there something else in play or some other package that's going to get Malcolm Brogdon out of there? I mean, I think, as I've said, I think the Brogdon thing was probably closer to being, if something had to happen, you know, as I reported, um, I felt like the Brogdon, uh, kicking the tires on Brogdon was was more significant, actually. Um, because the question has been, can he make guys around him better? It's not a question of whether or not he's a good player. It's not a question of whether or not Brogdon can, can do some things, spot up, shoot really well. That he's, you know, but can, is he the type of ball handling guard that you need? Can he make? those other guys around him better? And will the chemistry and all of those other intangibles be better with another point guard? Uh, and I, that, to me, that's the big one on what they do with Brogdon going forward, because that's a year ago, I would have said, no, there's no way that's on the table. Uh, this year that seems to be on the table more so than Miles Turner, in my opinion, but um, maybe they end up thinking that moving Miles Turner and getting some other pieces for him. Um, will make Brogdon better? I, I don't know. But I, I think there's there's so many questions to figure out. And, and there's no way this team looks the same, guys, by the time you get to after the trade deadline this year. Um, so regardless of what happens between now and the start of the season, I think there's going to be some uh, significant, at least one significant move by the time you get past the trade deadline in, in 2022.
1: Yeah, so I, I definitely wanted to touch a little bit on that Brogdon conversation because you did say he would be the most likely to be traded out of the five, you guessed. And there were some rumblings about a Lonzo ball for Brogdon sign and trade that was out there. And I, I heard Jonathan Gavoni and, and Zach Lowe talk about it on their podcast. And Gavoni brought up that you know while Bjorkran was part of the problem, there still could be hanging fruit in terms of locker room issues in there after bringing up Brogdon being a guy that could be traded. So is there maybe some skepticism there of Brogdon and his leadership in the locker room? And is there any other reason why they might be willing to move him other than maybe just not him being that natural point guard they want?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you got to remember when McMillan got booted, you know, um, I reported at the time, Brogdon was was the leading voice in the locker room that he needed to go. Um, and you know, Bjorkren and, and Brogdon were besties uh, when last season started. And, um, you know, I, I kind of hesitate to – critic. Look, look, Brogdon wasn't the best leader last year. Um, there was a belief that Sabonis wasn't the best leader either. But Brogdon mm-hmm. was a little bit more demonstrative, I think. You know, I, I kind of – I kind of give them both a little benefit of the doubt because I thought Bjorkren's leadership as a coach was so terrible – uh, it contributed to that and I'm kind of hesitate to rip them for everything that went wrong. But I will tell you this, um, you know, when I did my Ola Depot report, you know, about him wanting to play for other teams. Um, one of the things that I was told at that time, there's a detail in that story where I talk about how he turned off a bunch of guys on the team when it came to, they were doing a zoom call and um and they were talking about social justice stuff and things that were going on. And his nonchalant kind of apathetic attitude also kind of ticked off some guys. I'm talking about Oladipo here. Uh, During that same call, uh, Brogdon, I was told, basically told a couple of guys on the team who had opinions to, I'm not quoting it here, but basically it was interpreted as, y'all need to shut up, I got this. That it came from almost a... um, it felt like he was being a little bit arrogant and mm. I didn't really talk about it or write about it. Cause I just thought it was, you know, the whole piece A was about Oladipo. And I thought maybe, yeah, maybe that's a little bit, I didn't have it on authority from anyone else that that they felt salty about it. But then later on I heard like, yeah, some there was a particular player on the team that was salty about the way Brogdon talked to him. So is that indicative of him in general as a leader? I, I don't know. I think there may be something to that. And, um, you know, and, and I, I do get the sense that they've soured on him because if you just listen to the the postseason conference that Kevin Pritchett gave after they were eliminated, when he said that he told everybody in exits he was looking for a leader in the locker room. Wait, hold up a minute. You're looking for a leader in the locker room. I thought Malcolm Brogdon was your leader. You guys couldn't not stop but saying how great of a leader Brogdon was his first year, year and a half there. All we heard about was his leadership. And now this is the conversation you're having with your team that you had no leaders in the locker room last year? I mean, so you don't have to name Malcolm Brogdon there, but it means that something's gone sour when it comes to his leadership, because otherwise Pritchard wouldn't have said that. He didn't say, other than Malcolm Brogdon, I need other leaders. He said he had no leaders last year. Um, And, you know, my kind of autopsy on the season Um, You know, when I had the piece about Pritchard having to go into that locker room, you know, I was able to confirm four times. It may have been even more than that. But he had to go in there four times to basically read them the riot act because of the way they were playing with no heart, with no soul. Um, And uh, they were downright, they were a selfish group. And I know some people have taken issue with me saying selfish. um, And like, how could you call them selfish? That's not my opinion they were selfish. The opinion, I think, at large, when they evaluated their season was that they played selfish basketball. And so apparently there were some things happening in the locker room um, that were being said, that was being done, that goes beyond statistics, that told them that they were not playing for each other, that they were really playing for individuals. And if Malcolm Brogdon is your leader and that's still happening, then and you're saying you're still looking for a leader, it, it means – you want for something there's something that's not that did something change on Brogdon did his attitude change or maybe was he never the leader you thought he was to begin with I'm not sure what the answer is to that but I think that's definitely a legitimate um, that's a definitely legitimate issue when it comes to who they are going forward and because that's why I say Brogdon is more likely to get moved that's another reason than Turner if you told me that they could move both of them one or the other and they had deals that are equal for both and they can only move one, I think they would move Brogdon in that case Uh, because Turner's not, not that kind of guy that I think has a reputation or is seen as, you know, a guy who's going to be bad for locker room culture, but there's huge questions uh, about Brogdon in that regard. And I think that's real.
3: Jay, I find it very interesting. You said that because Alex made me out to be almost a conspiracy theorist of how I thought it was the silence regarding Malcolm Brogdon in Pritchard's press conference I felt was very loud to me compared to about a year or two ago when they had nothing but praise for Brogdon. Because, you know, we, we heard the praise on LaVert. We heard the praise very loudly on T.J. Warren. But for, for Brogdon, it seemed a little bit quiet. And as, as we're sticking on the subject, T.J. Warren for right now, his one-year anniversary of him dropping 53 points in the bubble just happened made Pacers fans almost shed a tear as to we miss him very much. Do you have any update on maybe the health status of T.J. Warren at this moment?
2: About a month ago, I was told he's ready to go. Awesome. Uh, yeah, there shouldn't be any setbacks. He shouldn't be starting the season out on minutes restrictions or <laughs> any of that sort of stuff. He should be past that right now. He's uh, – TJ, T.J. should be fine. And, um, you know, despite – you know, I've never been one to, like – the way people try to piss on my reporting, um, I've never been one to do that to other people's or uh, other things other people say, but you know, he never asked to leave Indiana, and um, uh, I, I believe that wholeheartedly based on all the people that I know and I've talked to, one in particular who's really close to him. Um, but um, yeah, uh, he's healthy, he's ready to go. Um, I think, I think TJ is uh. You know, he's that guy, like, he thinks he's going, from what I was told, he, okay, aside from him really liking Indiana, there's, like, a lot of people who will tell you they like a place or they love a teammate or they love a coach, right? You guys will hear him say it in a press conference, and then they'll be like, see, Jay Michael's full of crap. He said he loves him. And 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 I know it's a lie, <laughs> but you don't know it's a lie. <laughs> but they're saying what they have to say in front of the cameras, because what else are you going to say, right? Right. But T.J. Warren is one of those guys uh, that what he says is actually you can probably take it to the bank. He's one of the few people because he's not really built that way. He's not, a, he's not a politician in the way that Brogdon, you know, that's the, that's the word that most people use to describe Brogdon is that he's a politician. T.J. Warren's not a politician like that. What he says is what he actually feels. He thinks, aside from loving Indiana, uh, he thinks and believes the Pacers are willing to pay him when his contract comes up. And and so that's part of the draw too of why he wants to to stay in Indiana. He's found what he considers a home, and he's not trying to pull a, a Dennis Schroeder. You get you throw the money on the table and you make the offer to him. He's going to take it and stay. He's not going to wait. <laughs> he's not going to wait and, and try to uh, see what else is out there. I think he really is connected to Indiana, and he kind of the front office. I think he is. He's on good terms with them, and he likes them. And so that's why you know, T.J. Warren's healthy. He wants to be in Indiana. Just as I'm saying this, he'll probably get traded, just despite me. But no, <laughs> 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 look, nobody, look, nobody on this team is tradable. So I wouldn't be surprised by anything. But I think they like they like a lot of things about him. The same way they like qualities about T.J. McConnell, like how he's an Indiana guy. T.J. Warren is an Indiana guy, as far as the front office is concerned.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of people believe that the core three going forward is Levert, Warren, and Sabonis. And I and I'm curious your thoughts on on Sabonis. And well, there was you know some stuff that you reported last year, kind of talking about him being viewed as selfish and kind of looking to get his and and not really figure things out. So I'm just I'm just curious, real quick, can you talk about Sabonis and how you think playing for Carlisle will be different for him in terms of you know? What, how they'll use him, and then maybe how he is perceived as, as maybe not an all-star because he might not get as many touches or as much minutes going forward.
2: Yeah, I don't think Carlisle is going to have the ball stuck in his hands as much uh, as Bjorken had it stuck in his hands. And, yeah, when I said stuff about Sabonis being selfish, I, I, had, I had one person in particular who I trust um, on the team tell me that they thought he was going overboard. They thought part of the reason, though, also was because – as I said about Bjorkman, he was such a he was such a a headstrong coach that he kind of allowed him to be that. Like there were players, there were multiple players in there. Um, and and by the way, if you guys don't believe me, and I'm not talking about you guys, but people who listen, all you got to do is go back and look at the games. If you take your eyes off the stat box and send all sabonis bonuses doing X, Y, and Z, watch what happens when those players go to the bench during timeouts. What what? Is it an animated conversation, or guys kind of bickering and arguing with each other? You can see it, like you can physically see it. If you don't want to see it, you won't see it, but mm-hmm. it's there. Um, and so I saw a couple of exchanges with people, and so I followed up to try to figure out, like, is this like just you know, just kind of in the heat of battle? This is happening way more than I've ever been accustomed to seeing, and they felt like Sabonis was hogging a ball too much. And now Sabonis is saying look, we can't get anything done. Nobody's doing anything. The coach is too stubborn and too stubborn to change anything and make it work. So I'm going to take over and I'm going to do it. Like, and so I think there was some attitude like that in it. And I could kind of understand it from his perspective. When I say he was a little bit selfish, yeah, I don't mean in – I mean in the sense that with him, I just don't think the coach Bjorkren – I just don't think – that to me, that was one of his greatest failings. And he had plenty of them. But he would not tell Sabonis to cool it. And it becomes a chicken and egg argument. Is Sabonis hogging the ball too much and doing X, Y, and Z uh, first? Or is it his, his, him doing that a reaction to a coach who's not doing his job? And sometimes as a coach, you have to tell veterans like Brogdon and Sabonis to, 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 to take a step down, stand aside, I got this. And that was Bjorkin's biggest fail. And I reported that back before the all-star break, when things were really starting to go off the rails, he was afraid to go to those guys and put them in check. And as a result, they kind of took over more and tried to seize, you know, try to control what was happening more. And there was a feeling that they were doing what was in their best interest, more so than the team's best interest. And I'm sure they would tell you they were doing what they had to do because they felt like they're the best players and the coach was incompetent. And so I, I put – I still put like 75% of that blame on Nate Bjorkman. I think if you had a better coach there, none of this stuff happens. But you got to go beyond the stats and the numbers to kind of see what I'm talking about. When I talk about the team being selfish and the issues they had with Sabonis, look, he was doing his thing. There were times where he was the only hope that they had. Uh, but Bjorkman had no imagination. His defensive schemes were terrible. Uh, Sabonis was, actually, was pissed off that he kept getting put at the top of the zone and having to try to close out guys like Kevin Durant. <laughs> like, I mean, should he be upset about that? Yes, because that's not possibly a smart thing to have him do. So, I, so yeah, so Sabonis, look, I think he stays. He does too many other things well. I just don't think he maybe is going to have a statistically as dominant of a season, but he's still important to what I think they hope to do Under Carlisle, but yeah, I I don't expect the ball to, to be slowed down as much. So bonus to me, and I made these observations, you can go on my Twitter feed last year, he was much better when he got the ball and he was when he brought it down, and he faced up and made a quick decision with the ball and got off it. And I thought the offense was much better than when he was obviously posted up and kind of dribbling from a standstill.
3: I do think that, uh, you know, dialing it back a little bit for Sabonis could translate to winning, you know, a few more games. And, you know, as you mentioned, Karis LeVert was someone who went on J.J. Reddick's podcast, basically said his first game with the Pacers, Bjorkren just threw him in there, played him way more minutes than he was prepared for. And, you know, I think that kind of led to a little bit of a rough start to the relationship as LeVert started to kind of do his own thing at times. Um, But when you mentioned the coaching staff, I think they – Put the bar as maybe as low as it could be in terms of holding players accountable. How do you feel about this coaching staff this time around? They retained Calbert Cheney, Tyler Marsh, a few others, but also brought in Gennaro Pargo, Jack Shue, Zach Shue, and a few others that I know I'm missing right now. But how do you feel about this coaching staff outside of Rick Carlisle?
2: I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, a lot remains to be seen when it comes to that. I think Rick Carlisle though makes them all stronger Exactly. Just because I think people respect Carlisle that much. Look, it's crazy. Like when you deal with NBA teams, when you have a coach who's accomplished what Carlisle has, which is winning a championship, which nobody else on his roster um, has done. Um, you know, they have a certain. It kind of it kind of requires a certain level of respect that a guy like Bjorken could never get on his best day. Um, so I think if if Rick Carlisle hired me, they probably would respect. Like, just because he's the guy that hired me. I mean, I think he has that type of, of influence and pull. Um, but um, yeah, he's, you know, in the and in the fact that, you know, he's got a four-year guaranteed deal. He's involved in whatever kind of moves they make or don't make. He's got a bigger voice in this than what coaches have had previously. So you're not just talking to the coach. You're talking to the guy who can probably influence the guy to get your ass moved on out of here. So so you're talking to more than a coach. So that, that's what I think this staff is a result. I, I think it's all because, you know, Carlisle kind of his influence is going to make it a better staff. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know about Pargo as an assistant coach and what his strengths and weaknesses are and that sort of thing. Um, Calbert Chaney's a guy, like, you know, early in the process when they fired Bjorken. I kind of reported, I said, Chaney's going to stay. Like, out of everybody on that staff to stay, Ch- Calbert Chaney's going to stick around. Um, because he was really impressive, uh, and he kind of stayed above and away from all that nonsense that went on um, last season. But, you know, it goes to show you, too, that, you know, I've reported this as well uh, after they hired Bjorkman. The reason why his assistant coaching staff was what it was, they couldn't get anybody to come here to coach who was of any quality or somebody who had, like, somebody like a Ronald Norred. Like, they couldn't even get somebody. They couldn't get even some, someone like him. To uh, when I say someone like him, I don't mean like he's a nobody, but you know he's still not a big name coach, but he's a promising, up and coming, potential head coaching guy at some point down the line. They couldn't get somebody like him to leave Charlotte to come coach on Bjorklund's staff because people around the league didn't respect Bjork. I mean, I guess the flip side of that is that should have been a sign (laughs) that he's the best guy for the job. If other assistants aren't willing to leave to come join him, Um, and so. Um, and, and by the way, during the season last year, um, I got yelled at about this by an agent, but it, it was true uh, because it was true, um, was that, you know, they were talking about shuffling that assistant staff last year on the Bjorkman during the season. Um, and that's how bad it was. Mm. And I think my report came out that morning. And then later that day, Bataze and Greg Foster, <laughs> that incident <laughs> that happens against the Kings. The timing was like impeccable. But um, yeah, I th- yeah, I think the staff will be. Res- if, I think the staff will be respected and treated differently, and it will go down a different way, just because of Rick Carlisle being there. If nothing else, uh, worst case scenario, yeah, you know, you don't like this coach. I don't think you're going to get away. You're not going to see Bataze tell somebody to sit the f down this season. I, 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 don't, I don't think you have to worry about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was definitely an interesting moment, and I was kind of surprised how it was all handled. I, I still can't believe that it actually happened but here we are and and we're moving forward. And speaking of Batadze, I want to wrap things up here, Jay, just kind of looking at this second unit for a minute, because we know McConnell is going to be the backup point guard, but there's a lot of question marks of who's going to play that two through five position, because if they're looking at staggering minutes, does Batadze crack the rotation? What's O'Shea Brissett's role on this team? I know the Pacers really liked him last year, but does Carlisle like him? And then the, the biggest topic for me is, number one, Justin Holiday. I feel like he's a guy that could clearly start it, or, you know, come off the bench as the three, but does he still want to be here? Because is there a possibility they can move him because he might want to go somewhere else? And then the Edmund Sumner kind of versus Duarte at that two spot. I know Sumner really earned it last year, but to me, you don't invest in 13th overall pick, a guy that's 24 years old and start a guy that's on an expiring contract in that yeah. second unit over him.
2: Yeah, I could I could totally see Duarte jump in, Sumner in the rotation. Here's the one thing I have been told about Sumner, though, by somebody who's been with him. They said, man, his three-point shooting right now is off the charts. Mm. Like, <laughs> and like, I was told by someone, like, doesn't look, don't sleep on his, so you think his three-point shot improved last year? Like, he is shooting the lights out. So, um, that said, Sumner is an open court player. Um, Duarte seems like he can do either. He can play in half court, it appears. That's my assumption based off what I've seen so far. I think he can play in half court as well as he can play, in, you know, in open court. But I think where Duarte is a little bit different, he's physically stronger and he can play against bigger guys. So I, I don't necessarily believe that Duarte takes minutes from Sumner, but I think if it did become an either or, I could easily see uh, Duarte bumping him. I just, I, I can see a lineup where Duarte is playing, um, my, he just drained a beautiful three step up three and transition as I'm, we're talking now. Um, mm-hmm. I can see a guy like Duarte playing against bigger, stronger guys where Sumner's a little bit more slight in size. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's all sorts of combinations, um, that, that you can, you wonder about right now. Um, about, do you stick with, yeah, does Holiday want to stay? I mean, I know Justin is kind of, you know, he's gotten his uh, three-year deal. He's in year two of a three-year deal. Um, you know, he said all the right things, but you know, when his brother Aaron got moved, did you sense anything in his IG post? Did you I did. I did. Okay. Yep. Now go back to when I reported or when I said to a conversation with you, Alex, mm-hmm. about that I'm not sure if he wants to be here. And then he says that he supposedly calls me out, which is bullshit because a month later on a conference call, he said that, yeah, he wasn't sure if he was going to come back to Indiana, kind of confirming what I had said all along. I wasn't sure if he was going to come back. Uh, right. I thought, he li- I thought he liked it. And ideally he wanted to come back, but it wasn't a slam dunk. And now you see what he, he posts about Aaron when Aaron leaves. Okay. Uh, does it really sound crazy that Justin Holiday could want to be somewhere else? No, he's got guaranteed money now. Yeah. So, I mean, no, but uh, I, I think he wants to, I think, he, look, I think he wants to stay. He does want a place to call home. He does want a place where he can flourish. Um, I'm assuming that he's going to be a big part of what Rick Carlisle does. Um, Is he going to have the kind of statistical season this year that he had last year? I don't know. Does Duarte cut into his time? Um, Is Duarte better? You know, Holiday's really a a, a three who can play some two, whereas Duarte seems to be a a better ball handler, uh, better off pick and roll, uh, probably a little bit physically stronger um so I don't know what does that mean for holiday does he become expendable I could see all sorts of like different lineups possibilities guys saying screw it I want out um um, and you know I think the Pacers have good pieces that regardless if they get to that point um they can get something for them uh in return so um I you know I, I I can see just about anything going on two through five I'm not I'm not, I'm not sure what any of these lineups going to look like. I mean, does Isaiah Jackson crack any of them? I don't, like I said, if Turner's still there, I don't see that. But if Turner gets moved, then that changes what I think the second, second units are going to look like. But uh, I, I wanted the same thing, by the way, on O'Shea Brissett. Like, is Carlisle like him enough to use him the way he was used last year? Because he showed some good things last year, but I, I don't know. I don't know what Carlisle's thinking right now.
3: I really believe in O'Shea Brissett, and I really hope that he can still carve out a solid role. I thought he looked good in the first summer league game. Uh, Definitely looked better than, you know, a lot of other players on the court, showing that this is an NBA player right here. But as you mentioned for Justin Holiday, it can get messy anytime you're trading a family member. You know, so I could see why that could rub him wrong, of course. But going back to Chris Duarte, this is someone that in the first summer league game, you saw it immediately. The confidence was there. He can create his own shot. So it feels like the Pacers have to carve out some type of role, especially when, you know, they made it known at 13, that was their guy. They weren't going to take any trade offers. So I'm really excited to see how that unfolds. But, Jay, I really want to thank you for coming on. Love the chat today. And tell everybody where they can find you on uh, social media.
2: I'm at this is Jay Michael on Twitter.
1: Easy enough, right? (laughs) Yeah. All right everybody. Well, yeah, Jay, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh and uh, we'll have to do it again soon, especially if the Pacers make any more moves this offseason to get you to break it down. But right now, I think that they have made some some minor moves, but overall the big move was getting Rick Carlisle and this is kind of the hope I think the Pacers front office is, you know, he can change things and make this team uh, a top-tier team in the Eastern Conference because we, we had a bad year last year, but the prior year before that, when you had Jeremy Lamb starting for La Depot, this team was a four seed. So I, I think they believe in this team, but at the same time, I know the East has gotten stronger with some of the moves that have been made. So we'll see what happens. And uh, we got to get you out of here. This game is going on right now. So once again, thank you so much for coming on, Jay.
3: Fun conversation as always with Jay Michael. You can find him on Twitter at This Is Jay Michael. And uh, just A lot of interesting stuff going on. You know, the Pacers having moved back, Keelan Morton's guarantee date, as well as acquiring uh, the trade exception for the Doug McDermott sign sign trade, I think leaves them with um, kind of exhausting all options. Alex, I think uh, we're not done here making moves.
1: Yeah, Jay hinted at that. He said, don't be surprised if the Pacers make another move before the season starts. I still would be a little bit shocked if it's not a Jeremy Lamb minor move. If it's a bigger move, I'll be completely stunned. I can't see it right now, but I think the most telling thing he said in that conversation was he does not expect this same roster to be intact after the trade deadline. So I'm keeping my eye on that. I know it's miles while away from that, about, about six months away from that flat show. I mean, I'm not looking too far ahead, but I'm just curious to see what they could do. But overall, you know, I, I, Jay dropped some really good nuggets and, yeah, I really enjoyed talking with them. Some great stuff there.
3: Yeah, really did. But Alex, as we wrap up, tell the people on uh, where they can find us on social media.
1: Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Setting the Pace Three. You can find us over on Instagram at Pacers Talk. I'm at Alex Golden MBA. And my co-host Michael J. Facci is at underscore facci. And if you want to follow us on Facebook, we have a Facebook page called Setting the Pace. I believe it's a, a slash mark, and then it says. Pacers talk. So something on there. You could find us on on Facebook as well. We do have two accounts. One is Pacers Talk, but Tyler Smith, the host of Indie Sports Legends, runs that account. Uh, former co-host of the show. We're going to get him back on this off season, and then setting the pace. A Pacers podcast is on Facebook as well, where we drop stuff in there, and people like to have conversations. So yeah, I think that covers it. Did I miss anything?
3: No, you didn't. But if you are officially now team Chris Duarte over Moses Moody, then say these three words.
1: Let's go Pacers.